This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Let me, um, this is from a chapter, I'll read you about three or four wee bits. Um, This is from a chapter called Then What? For as far back as we can trace our own story, death has been one of the mind's obsessions. And it seems to be unique to us, the human animal. So obsessed are we with the knowledge of our mortality that Martin Heidegger, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, defined the human animal as a being towards death, one who was always old enough to die and knew it. He described our condition as thrownness, finding ourselves thrust or thrown into a life we neither asked for nor understand the meaning of, yet with the knowledge that one day, maybe one day soon, it would be taken from us. On earth, maybe even in the whole universe, this knowledge seems to be unique to us. Of course, it is impossible for us to fathom the inner or spiritual lives of the other creatures we share the world with, but they do not seem to live with the constant knowledge that one day they'll die. In a chorus from his play, The Dog Beneath the Skin, W.H. Auden meditates on the unselfconscious immediacy of the animal's life. Happy the hare at morning, for she cannot read the hunter's waking thoughts. Lucky the leaf unable to predict the fall, the mineral stars disintegrating quietly into light. But what shall man do who can whistle tunes by heart, Know to the bar when death shall cut him short, like the cry of the sheer water. All animals fight death when it threatens, and there is evidence that some of them grieve the death of their fellows, but most of them seem to move on and forget what happened. They certainly don't care for their dead the way we do. They let them disintegrate where they drop, whereas we give our dead funerals, and erect memorials to them, and go on wondering what has happened to them. In fact, it would be little exaggeration to say that it was the fate of the dead that started us thinking, thinking about ourselves and the world in which we found ourselves. Much came from that thinking, including religion, which is best understood as belief in spheres of reality behind or beyond, but related to the one we inhabit while we are alive. And looking at the dead and wondering what happened to them might have been what got it going. The most obvious thing they noticed about the dead was that something that used to happen in them had stopped happening. They no longer breathed. It was a small step to associate the act of breathing with the idea of something dwelling within us, yet separate from us, the physical body that gave it life. The Greeks called it psyche, the Roman spiritus, both from verbs meaning to breathe or blow. A spirit or soul was what made a body live and breathe. It inhabited the body for a time, and when the body died, it departed. But where did it go? One explanation was that it had gone somewhere else, the way a person could inhabit a place for a time, then move out. This somewhere else grew into the idea of a spiritual world on the flip side of the physical one that we inhabit while we are alive. And then I talk 
a little bit about the religious responses, the religious descriptions of what that other place may be. But let me jump to our own day, because there's a a new way of thinking about life after death or life in the midst of death, and it's one where the eschatologists are not priests, they're scientists. In our day, it is no longer just religion that offers us a way to transcend death and achieve everlasting life. Modern science has now entered the game. But there's a big difference between its approach and religion's. It is no longer God who offers us eternal life. It is science-based technology. And when it comes, it won't be lived in heaven. It will happen right here on earth. The plan is to conquer or outrun death so completely that we'll postpone it indefinitely. It will be immortality on the installment plan. The scientists who are working on it tell us they're not there yet, but they're speeding along nicely. Meanwhile, for those of us unfortunate enough to die before death has been finally conquered, the best bet is to have our corpses preserved by freezing them, cryopreserved in the jargon, so that science can resurrect them when it has perfected the technology. It is reminiscent of religious eschatology, but without the supernatural element. The last trump won't be blown by the Archangel Gabriel. A guy in a white coat will do it. It will be a secular salvation, the the only one that will work according to its evangelists, because we are alone in the universe, and if we want to live forever, we'll have to see to it ourselves. So what will they do to us if we sign up for this eternal life plan, and where do we go to get it done? There are four companies that offer the service, three in the United States and one in Russia. The largest is the Alcor Life Extension Foundation near Phoenix in Arizona. Alcor offers two procedures to customers who have signed up for its version of eternal life. In the basic procedure, which costs $200,000, Alcor's technicians drain the blood from the corpse, patient in their lexicon, and replace it with antifreeze and other organ-preserving chemicals. It is then lowered headfirst into a tank or flask filled with liquid nitrogen, where it is preserved at a temperature of minus 190 centigrade. There it will rest until secular resurrection day, when it will be thawed and reanimated to emerge blinking into the world of whatever century it happens to be at the time. There's a cheaper option at (laughs) $80,000 called Neuro Only, in which the head alone is preserved. (laughs) The deal here is that on Cryo Resurrection Day, the brain and the mind it carries will be digitally scanned, purged of any unnecessary neuro junk, and the good stuff left will be uploaded onto an artificial body or robotic prosthesis, where it will exist forever unimpeded by the ills that mortal flesh is heir to. I'm going to stop reading there because I'm hoping that Hollywood will pick up the rest of the chapter (laughs) and turn it into a zombie apocalypse movie uh, with me as the chief zombie. Um, I'm told I will require no makeup. Um, (laughs) And a final bit from um, a chapter called Losing It, and this is on the pleasures of being old. 
and what you can get out of it. What I want to do with what time I have left is to cherish those I love and indulge myself in that delicious form of reflective sadness we call melancholy. There are many ways to do it. The easiest is with an old friend or colleague over a meal and a bottle of wine when you both look back. It has been said that the past is another country. Well, visit it in your memory. Explore its foreignness and see how different you were then. Be embarrassed by that other self, but be forgiving too. None of us really knew what we were doing. We were making it up as we went along, trying to figure it out, get the hang of it, find ourselves. Smile as you remember the way it was back then. Shake your head, but be kind. And call up the dead. Remember them with fondness as well as exasperation. Their stories are over, so it's okay to try to assess them or reach a verdict on them. Don't be too hard on them. They were less sure of themselves than they seemed. It's not only the past that's another country. Most of our friends were strangers to us as well. They all had their own secrets and sorrows. The truth is, like us, they were fumbling their way through life. They were all a wee bit lost, so tenderness is all. They can't change their story now, it's told. Ours isn't, not quite, but maybe it's time to turn our mind towards our own ending, which might not be that far away. The bus might already have left the depot. As we begin to contemplate the end of our own story, it is important to get in the right mood. The mood I recommend is the last day of the holidays, another summer gone, and the sweet sadness of leaving. Poets do reflective melancholy better than anyone else, another reason the old should read them religiously as they close the story of their lives. Here's a poem that captures the mood I recommend. Goodbye to the Villa Parana by Francis Hope. I nicked this from Alan Bennett, by the way. We're both the same age, and we're both in the bus shelter. <laughs> this is Francis Hope's wonderful poem. Prepare the journey north, smothering feet in unfamiliar socks, sweeping the bathroom free of sand, collecting small change of little worth. Make one last visit to the tip. Did we drink all those bottles? And throw out the unread heavy paperback, saving one thriller for the trip. Chill in the morning air, hints like a bad host that we should be going. Time for a final swim, a walk, a last black coffee in the square. If not exactly kings, we were at least franc bourgeois with the right to our own slice of place and time and pleasure and someone else's things. Leaving the palace and its park, we take our commonplace along the road as summer joins the queue of other summers driving towards the dark. And I want to add a wee coda. When I'd finished this book, something happened, and I got in touch with my editor and said, can I add a few paragraphs um, to the acknowledgments page? And the great thing about that is that nowadays acknowledgments are at the back of a book. And when I first started writing books 50 years ago, they were all at the front, you know, the those pages when you thank your Aunt Jessie and your professor at 
union, all of that stuff. Nowadays, they're shoved to the back where you don't need to read them, although I always do. Anyway, I asked if I could smuggle another page onto the book, and this is what I wrote. My dog Daisy died as this book was going through the final stages of the copy editing process. She was 17 years old, and for every minute of those years, she was happiest when she was beside me. We walked thousands of miles together on the Pentland Hills till she was too old and tired to keep going. The first trek I took without her was on Good Friday four years ago. It seemed the right day for it, and I wept as I strode through the green kluch without her wee body trotting behind me close at my heels. Her final years were of peaceful decline, slower walks round the block, having to be carried upstairs, more visits to the vet, sleeping most of the time, though dogs have always been great at that anyway. I'm getting quite good at it too. We held her close as the kindly vet released her from what had become a painful disintegration. Given how old I am, she will not be replaced. Daisy was my last dog, and the years blow away like leaves in the wind. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, In the book, you talk about how in the Middle Ages, they had a series of books called Ars Moriendi, The Art of Dying, books that encourage you to think about how to die and how to prepare for death so that your soul would be... Uh, purified, or your soul would be ready for death. Uh, we don't have that um, uh, anymore. And in fact, our attitude to death and dying and mourning in particular is very different from it was even in the 19th century. We tend to hold it at bay. Traffic no longer stops for a hearse. You know, we're, we're, we put, we, people don't actually die anymore. They pass. We don't like saying the word death, I've noticed. So what is this book, a 21st century Ars Moriendi? a sort of art of dying, how to die. I think that's an excellent way uh, to put it. Um, I was reading Montaigne this week, and he said um, the whole purpose of philosophy is to learn how to die, and so I suppose it is a kind of philosophical text. Um, I do spend quite a lot of time thinking about the way, um, as religion declines, our um, attention to death uh, and the art of doing it well has faded, Death has now become medicalized. Um, The doctors are the new priests. um, And they seem intent on postponing it as long as possible and not allowing us to do it for ourselves. I mean, I very much will insist on dying at home. Um, It will save the NHS a lot of money if more of us did that. I don't want to die in a hospital wired up to machines. I want to be in a bed where I can be cuddled. Um, and I want to be surrounded by the people I love. I might even come out with some famous last words. I mean, that's another, <laughs> that's another thing that's fallen by the way. Well, it I could mean, be there for hours. Really. Yeah, we could. <laughs> <laughs> I could write, I, I could dictate another book. I mean, <laughs> remember Oscar Wilde looking at the wallpaper saying, one of us has to go. So, so, and, and, what I think we need to reclaim our own dying. Yes. Um, and, uh, and I think because dying well is an art, uh, and it's an art not only that's important 
to us to reconcile ourselves uh, to those maybe we have hurt and injured. But it's very, very important. Our dying well is important to those who are left. Um, one of the great pathologies of modern life is, is the kind of consequential impact on the children of people who haven't died well, who maybe died angrily, who've been unreconciled to them, may, may not even have seen them for years. And it seems a pity to let the light go down on a life that's unreconciled. And I think that we can relearn a lot of the lessons that religion used to teach in the Ars Moriendi, self-examination, forgiveness. Um, even if you don't believe in a divine forgiver, you can believe in a human forgiver. You may have to forgive yourself. Um, because I've sat beside the beds of, 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 of men and women who've looked back down the years and regretted much of what they did and saw no way of kind of reconciling it, bringing it together. So I hope that by reclaiming our own dying, by insisting that we do it for ourselves, and I'm actually quite keen to know what the moment feels like. I wouldn't be able to come back and tell you what it's like, but I do kind of want to be there. Um, Henry you want to James, be aware of it. To be aware of it. And yeah. I, they tell me that, by definition, you can't be in your own death because it's the end of your own being. But I'm going to try my damnedest to see what it feels like and maybe even send a wee signal back. Um, uh, because I think we should own dying. It was in the script from the beginning. We knew it was coming. It's, it's ungrateful and gluttonous to uh, delay it too long. I mean, uh, have your final moment on the stage... Take your bow and then bugger off what you've said, told me to do. But sometimes, if, yeah, sometimes, of course, you have to go early if you want to do that. You have to prepare and you almost have to leave the stage slightly early, don't you? You don't hang on. And one of the difficulties, of course, is, is knowing how the demented die. Um, there's a lot of heartbreaking stuff going on at the moment. Even if they leave a living will that says that by this point I want... Um, my, I want the machines to stop. I want to be taken off the drip and all of that. And there are horrible debates at the moment because um, there is no person in with the kind of responsibility except on the family. It's one of, another example of the way our human cleverness, we are the cleverest animal on the planet, but our cleverness gets us into these predicaments that we don't anticipate. We didn't anticipate um, the fact that we would all be living well into our 80s. Um, the impact that's having on social care, on hospitals, on nursing homes, on the children who, who are very often driven mad trying to care for um, parents mm. when they themselves are working full time. We're not a thinking forward animal. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it may be that death will make us do that a bit more because we constantly invent ways of doing things and we don't think through the ethics of the impact. So this book, in a way, is a plea to do all of that, but a plea also to be grateful. The fact that we got a life at all um, uh, was wonderful. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a gamble, and, and the egg and the sperm in our particular case got through. I mean, millions of them don't. Yes. I mean, we, we have an opportunity to go into all sorts of areas, and when it comes to questions, do. But, uh, for example, medical ethics, euthanasia... Alzheimer's and also the death of the young. These are all massive 
moral issues about people who don't live to an old age, people who are struck down suddenly with no time to prepare. All of these are, are, are different issues. But because this is a, a book festival, I want to talk to you about the vocabulary of death, and because it's, it's a book festival. And it struck me um, rather extraordinary when my mother was dying. Um, it, it was five days of septicemia. And um, the priest, uh, there were a lot of priests, because my father was a priest, and so the, the, uh, each day a priest would come in different priests, and they had their own script, as it were. They had 15 minutes or 20 minutes. They'd come in with their script. It was all written down, the religious script, and then they'd go away. And then my sister and I would have eight hours without a script. So we don't have, maybe, without religion, we lack the vocabulary, the language of consolation. We do, um, and interesting, we also lack... Um, one of the things I noticed this year for the first time in history... Most funerals in Scotland were secular humanist funerals. Um, that's another thing we have to think about. How do you, how do you develop rites and ceremonies um, for these important moments in, in life if you no longer have a religious hinterland that you can rely on? Um, and in my experience, um, humanist funerals can be very well done indeed. They can, in fact, be more owned by the family often than religious funerals, which tends to have a fixed script and whether you buy um, the script or not, you tend to get it. But to go back to what you do around the actual dying, even the religious, even, even priests get embarrassed by death, which is one reason why um, it's useful for them to have ceremonies. It's said, for instance, that Catholic priests in World War I were more used than other clergy because they had a script when they were out in no man's land whispering to the dying. Rather than giving them their own thoughts, they would read sustaining, consoling um, uh, scriptures that seemed to work at the time. And it seems to me that the rule has to be a kind of consolatory pragmatism. Do what works. Do what helps. Even if you're a person of no faith, if the faith word is needed in that situation, use it. It's not about you. Mm. It's about helping that person move out and catch the tide. And there are other ways of doing it. You can be grateful to them, uh, whisper to them that you love them for the way they looked after you, remember past holidays, get them to smile, get, get them to think about it. They may well be doing that panoramic look back. Um, affirm all of that. But above all, cherish them. Let them know that their final breaths are in a place where they are loved. Now, there's a lot of wisdom, not only in Christian and Islamic and in uh, Judaic literature about this. They do take dying very seriously. You will find it in the secular philosophers as well. You will find it in uh, Marcus Aurelius. Ransack all of those sources. Let's recover. Let's take back this big fact in our life, the biggest thing after birth. Let's do it well, um, and let's help others do it if they're struggling with it. So you're right, we need the words, but they're all out there. And you use, I think, you, you use a lot of poetry in your work, poetry and, and music, and suggest reading poetry and, and playing music. And what strikes me is that you're harnessing some of the tools of religion in a secular way. So instead of having psalms, you have Mozart. Instead of having mm -hmm. prayers, you mm -hmm. have John Donne or Philip Larkin. And so you, you're still applying religious principles, but in a secular way. I think that the best um, language for death has always been poetry, not prose. I mean, even the big biblical bits um, 
uh, have a kind of poetic man that is born of a woman has but a short time to live and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like the grass. That's poetry. That's about human finitude. And I think that the, there's a lot of terrific poetry about death and dying. In fact, you could say it's always been the poet's great theme. It was Larkin's great theme. I mean, he said that all poets are, as I sense, regretting the way the past is slipping away from us. They're always trying to catch, doing what um, Alan Bennett calls waving a hanky, you know, the elegiac mood. Uh, and there's a lot of great poetry there. Um, uh, the great blood axes of books has wonderful sequence. I, I, they become my scripture. Um, and I've, I've discovered that when I'm doing funerals, um, there are a number of passages that most people um, want to everything there is a season and a time to everything under heaven a time to be born and a time to die a time to tear down and a time to pluck up but they also want um, fear no more the heat of the sun um, and all of the, a, a, a touch of Shakespeare um, maybe something from Larkin maybe even honestly the great Obad poem which is his fear of death poem Larkin was terribly afraid of death and reading of other people's fear can somehow help to extinguish your own. So I think that we should, secular celebrants, all of us, doctors, nurses, we should be rebuilding a vocabulary to manage this, the most important event in our life, so that we all do it better. Absolutely, but uh, at the same time, as the readiness being all, Mm -hmm. and being ready and being prepared and reading the right things and thinking about the right things, we have to be aware of life, don't we? I had a friend called Tanya who said to me once, you're always going on about death. You know, you're always going on about it far too much. Um, if you think about death all the time, then you die every day. So you are ruining the act of living vivaciously because you're over-concerned about the readiness to die. What do you think about that? No, I don't buy... Well, I mean, if yeah. you are literally that morbid, and in fact, yes. uh, and there are some people... Well, I mean, we used to go and visit my in-laws in the States, and my, my grandfather, whom we loved, was melancholic, but we'd walk in the door and he'd start crying because in two weeks' time we were going away. Um, yeah. Now, that's a waste of a fortnight's holiday, and if... If that's Depends how you, you live are. your life, yeah. I mean, yeah. God, you wouldn't do that. Um, but, but I think that knowing and acknowledging your day, as Walter Delamere, look thy last and all things lovely every day. Know that this day could be the last, so don't waste it on that horrible action um, or maybe that stupid purchase. Um, uh, uh, live it passionately. Well, I'm not good at that because I've always tended to live ahead of myself. I'm trying to learn in my old age to cherish. I've got a wild battalion of sparrows that eat in our garden at the moment, and I spend uh, about 10 minutes every morning just watching them. The, they just flock round the stuff my wife has put out for them, and I think, yeah, good on you. And they, they, ha- they live, how long does a sparrow live? Three years? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch a wee insect that gets a day, a mayfly, affirm it. Yes, it. Say yes to it. Um, But don't ruin the time you've got by um, wasting time about the moment when it's... I mean, that's very ungrateful, isn't it? Yes. But I was going to ask... I'm going to jump to a question now because I'm interested in your preparations for death and your appreciation of the moment. Um, Do you think, as you get older that the approach to death requires more selfishness, i.e. more time to yourself. You talk about grace and you talk about friendship, but do you, do you have a moment where you think life really is too short for Barry and Susanna's dinner party? 
Oh, God. Just not bloody going to that. Oh. It's three oh, hours. No, Barry, no. one of Barry's jokes. Yeah, I can't do yeah. it. No, I'm you're making at, these people up, by the yeah. way. No, you're dead right. And one of the great things about, uh, about being old is you say, no, I'm not going to waste time at that. Um, I never have enjoyed parties. I had to go to them. I mean, I'm, I'm really happiest on my own or maybe with, with, with the people well, I, I love I think you need an audience, Richard. I don't really think yeah, you're but I don't have to take them home. Yes, uh, I, know, I, know. <laughs> I come down from the hill and perform yes. and then bugger off again. Um, no, I, I, but do it how you do it. I mean, yes. if that's the way you get your kicks, if that's the way, if, if a friendship is very important, if that's where you get your energy, use yes. it. One of the things I talk about in the book is the tragedy of dying not knowing who you were. Ah, uh, yes. Not sometimes knowing. we perform a version of ourselves yeah, and it becomes yeah, a performance. That's right. That trying to be, I spent a hell of a lot of my life trying to be something I was never cut out to be. Um, and I think that's probably not only true of me. A lot of poems are about discovering the stranger that you were. I quote Michael Donahue's lovely poem uh, about uh, you will do the very last thing and he will talk about the surgeon covering the face of the stranger that lies there. Uh, Dennis, uh, Derek Walcott's got a poem about that. Break bread, um, uh, drink wine with the stranger that you were. And so one of the things I think that we can usefully do as we get older is to affirm and honestly admit the kind of person that we were, say yes to it. It was probably always struggling to be acknowledged by you, but you wanted to be something different, something better looking or cleverer. Well, yes, up to a point. You know, remember the people who... Um, I always, I'm slightly suspicious by people who found themselves. You know, they said... You think, God, can't you stay as you were? It's much, you know, you find themselves... So they tend to go on and on. Yep. I think surely it's about <laughs> cherishing other yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. being aware of the effect you have mm -hmm. on other people yep. and, that, yep. and the, being, coming out of that mm -hmm. selfishness and recognising that the greatest happiness comes from outside yourself. Yes, and I get with you. I mean, I know there is a kind of finding yourself movement that, that, that's, that can be kind of meretricious and, um, and, and sick-making, kind of <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow metaphysics, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but I think that you can't... It, it, I've known people who didn't really know what they were like. Very often big men, big confident men, the kind of men that do a lot of, of what they call mansplaining. They never stop yes. talking, asserting themselves because they seem to be afraid that if they shut up, there'll be a horrible loneliness there. And it seems a pity uh, not to acknowledge and to own that, um, that maybe you were a bit of a braggart because you were deeply insecure, actually. Yes. Um, and you can get help doing that, and a lot of it comes from reflective self-analysis. Um, and... But sometimes it can be too tragic to contemplate. I mean, if you've really hurt people by decisions you've made in your life in the past. But I think owning all of that is essential too. And then uh, forgive yourself. I mean, I keep quoting Gerard Manley Hopkins. My own heart let me more have pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter kind. Kindness, I think, is all in all of this. And if, if we can reflect on the kind of life we've had and if it makes us kinder towards others, forgiving them, being forgiven. That's kind of what we're needing at the moment, I yeah. think. And I think that the approach of death can maybe help us do our wee bit of it better. So it's a pivot, isn't it? It's a pivot, but so you might look back mm -hmm. uh, towards your life with some kind of melancholy, some kind of nostalgia, but you also you have to look forward. And as a priest, former priest, still a priest, mm -hmm. a bit ambivalent about your priestliness sometimes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. 
Do you believe in the resurrection of the body? No. Um, I'm not sure whether um, the resurrection of the body was the physical resurrection of the physical Jesus um, um, and whether it was whether the Christian belief in the resurrection is only the belief in that resurrection or whether all bodies get resurrected. Um, I can believe in the possibility of some kind of ongoing life that's not physically related. Um, and I think that I've had enough psychic experiences. I think the resurrection probably was a psychic experience. Certainly the earliest accounts of it before the bits that were mythologized and the write-ups in the Gospels. Uh, Paul's experience was a psychic experience, I think. Um, I've, uh, th there, is, there may be some truth in this psychic, this encountering of minds. There may be an ultimate mind behind the universe. I get twinges of... of, of um, knowledge and experience of that but I can't be certain it certainly can't be proved and so if there is anything that goes on after life it won't be this body of mine uh, reconstituted in, into a, a kind of another molecular structure it may be that I move they say that no energy is ever wasted and so that that even on the dying that goes on in the universe is, ne is never completely lost I quite like elements of the Asian idea of of being blown out like a candle and then being received into some great sea of bliss i hope it's bliss and not the opposite there's a lot of the opposite in christianity and islam um, but my own what's happened to me in in my old age is that i cease to want life after death which is interesting yes. um, because as a young priest uh, i very definitely was afraid of death wanted life after death um, but I discovered now that I don't. It actually happened at a moment walking down Scald Law and the Pentlands. I realized halfway down that I no longer desired nor expected. That's something that happened in me. But I don't, the stage I've reached theologically, I no longer try to persuade people to see the way I'm seeing things because I've changed my mind so often in life. Um, but I, but I, I do want permission to be able to say how I'm seeing things. And at the moment, I can honestly say, I'll be sad to go, but I really don't want a second act. Right. Do you mind being cremated? Will you be cremated? I will be cremated. <clears throat> I, will, I intend to be cremated because I want my ashes uh, sprinkled on the pentland. That's my next question. Yeah. So yeah. You, when you walk to the... When you walk on the pedalance, pedalance mm -hmm. without your dog, do you ever think, well, I'll be here soon? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I know... Uh, Is I that just, a comfort? Is that comforting? Um, not so much a comfort. It's, it seems dramatically somehow fitting. Um, I've warned my son to get out of the wind so that I don't blow back in his eyes. Because, yes, that's... Uh, yes, that, that, um, so you don't want to be fired from a gun. Uh, yeah. I become a firework. I certainly don't want Some that. Some people like becoming fireworks. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. No, no, it's no. It's not no, fireworks no. in no, one life for you, no, probably. No. Um, yeah. But, yes. So, um, f uh, something I was quite... Into. I met a doctor once. I'm coming to you all very soon. I met a doctor once who said to me, do you know, faith doesn't make much, I found in my experience at the moment of dying, faith doesn't make much difference really, people are either scared of death or they're not so you get Christians who are scared of death Christians who want, the actual faith bit doesn't mm. make a difference, do mm. you agree mm. with that? Mm. Julian Barnes wrote a book about it he wrote a, I interviewed Julian at the book festival I, it must have been 10 years ago, he wrote a book called Nothing to be Afraid of and he is afraid of death and he said there were four categories, I'll list them actually in the book, he said there are um, people who are not afraid of death and they have a faith, people who are not afraid of death and have, a, and have no faith, people who are afraid of death 
and have a faith and people who are afraid of death and have no faith. Um, he, he described them as the ones that are really up shit creek. Um, yes. um, but in fact, it, it, it seems to operate like that. And I've ministered to people who had a faith and were very afraid of death, partly because the nature of the faith made them afraid. Because there are some versions of faith that are actually quite horrifying. There are some um, scriptures that suggest if you haven't got it right down here, you're in for a hell of a time yes. in the other place. Um, and if you buy that literally, you can see why um, some people do die scared. I, 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 I meditate on this in the book. I'm intrigued by it. I don't have that fear of death myself. Uh, I may have it at the very last moment. I don't know. Um, but I'm wondering if it's, if it's not a deep ontological thing that being resents and fights against non-being. We came out of nothing. We returned to nothing. We are something in between. And I can understand why that there may be an almost deep inner ontological resistance to the undoing of our whole being. I can get that. Um, but to be afraid of the pain of dying, I'm told by doctors that's very unlikely. Most of us will die in an undignified way, but we're unlikely nowadays to die in raging pain with some exceptions. Some exceptions. Um, so I think that we can probably go gently into that good night. And do we, do we is it a matter of not fearing death, but just fearing the act of dying. So we don't fear being dead, yeah. we fear yeah. the act of yeah. dying. But once we're dead, it's yeah. as much as the yeah. same as before we were born. Again, the caveat is if you have a religious belief that what happens after death can be pretty horrible. Um, if you're without that, then I think that, uh, as the, an ancient philosopher said, being afraid of what of the nothingness after death is as daft as being afraid of the nothingness that became before you were born. You are bracketed between emptinesses, as it were, yes. in your own experience. Um, I think a lot of people are afraid um, of loneliness. They're afraid of pain. They're afraid of the unknown. The unknown is also something that's, been, um, that, that's easy to be frightened of, going turning a dark corner in the street in an unknown city. There are so many ghost stories about all of that. So there is a kind of rational thing about it, I guess. Um, but I th but to fear of being dead, I think, is unnecessary because there's no there there to be afraid of, hmm. I think. Yes. And is there an advantage, do you think, I've just made up this phrase, to being faith-fluid, as mm -hmm. it were, so that you can dip... I mean, in a, to be rude to you... Um, you can dip in and out of Christianity, can't yeah. you? I mean, you yeah. sort of dip in, you take bits of sort of tapas Christianity. I'll yeah. have a bit of that, yeah. and a bit of that. Um, what the Catholics call the cafeteria Christian, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, you're not, because real, proper, you know, serious, new evangelical Christians. I've got one, a friend called Mark. He really disproves of this kind of attitude. Sure. This yeah. religion, yeah. Christianity, yeah. L-I-T-E, light. Yeah, you know, yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. but you, you're, you know, quite, because you get the best of both worlds, don't you, really? Yeah. And I may know more about the history of Christianity than he does. Um, and it happens to be a very fluid subject. I mean, it's, uh, the study of theology itself is very fluid. Um, what people have believed over the years is, is very fluid. Um, the fact that... There, well, what's happened to me in my, in my later years is that I've become less bothered by uncertainty. Um, and the thing I actually fear most about the human animal is precisely its certainties, its political certainties, its theological certainties. Um, I think they're very often evidence of a deep inner emptiness and fear. 
And I think it's the ability to live with uncertainty, to be capable of changing your mind because you can listen. You're not always fighting and defending a position. You may actually hear something. Ah, yes, I can see that now. Um, and I've had a very turbulent religious history. I've been a very certain kind of Christian in my time. I'm doing a funny thing at the moment. I'm rereading all the horrible books I wrote. Um, and, Blimey. And, and it's very interesting. The early ones were all very passionate, certain books. Yes. But I can see inside that young priest was definitely trying to prove to himself something he knew he couldn't prove. And he disapproved of you, wouldn't he? He disapproved oh, of you Oh, God, now. yes. I mean, yeah. my last sermon as a bishop, I said that I became in my 60s the kind of bishop I hated when I was a priest in my 30s. Yeah. yeah well, you better and, live to 90 and yeah. then you can see how that, how yeah, that works Yeah, and I out. might end up a fundamentalist again. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. But the art of... Uh, can we have the lights? We've got four microphones for questions. The idea of living in mystery, of course, it was good enough for Plato and Keats, so probably good enough for us, really. Um, have we got some questions? This is where a literature festival. There's a gentleman here, just in the front, in the white shirt. And if you put your hands up, I'll get microphones ahead. Yes, and then up there, please. Oh, it's the same one there. Gentleman here, have you got the microphone? And then up there, the third question up there. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Richard and James. It's been an extremely enjoyable conversation. I'm one of those humanists that you mentioned, Richard. He's um, the Archbishop of Scottish Humanism. I'll take that quote. No, I've ordained them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love your work. It's, been very, it's inspired me since Godless Morality, and, I'm, and I've enjoyed... I haven't had a chance to read this book properly, but I was struck both by the, the quotation from Bede at the beginning about the sparrow's flight through the hall, and also the quotations from Blade Runner towards the end. Um, what struck me is that you as a priest have had the chance to sit with people as they die. Mm -hmm. As a humanist, that's happened to me remarkably rarely. What I find is very few people want to confront the reality of their death. I, end up to, I talk to families, but I don't talk to people you know, who are facing death themselves, except yeah. in really quite strange, circ uh, unusual circumstances. Um, but what I do think is that people now are not concerned with immortality as we once were. I think perhaps that yeah. the reason that humanist ceremonies have become so popular is that we recognize that our immortality is in memory. When we, when we live on in the, in the hearts and minds of the people who loved us and who we loved, then that is immortality enough. Would you go along with that? Um, yes, I, I think that um, we do live on for a few generations in the memory of others, um, and it may be the only immortality that some of us actually believe in. But there are others who believe in all sorts of other versions of that. And what I'm no longer interested in is in trying to hammer people into the way I see things, but I do strongly object to them trying to hammer me into the way they see things. And this, this is the only way, the only take on the mystery of existence, which is why the certainties that I think are so dividing us in all sorts of ways have to be resisted. Um, and, and, and a kind of compassionate, kindly uncertainty that allows others to be passionately believing as long as they caveat it by saying, this is how I happen to see things. And to go back to your original question about sitting by the dead, it may be something that secular society has to relearn because there were lots of good things about religion. It did lots of good caring for people. And as that fades... It's gradually being replaced by secular celebrants of, of, uh, of 
of the blessing of children, marrying and burying. But what doesn't seem to have been discovered yet is the pastoral care of people while they're still alive. Now, whether you'll probably get into more of that as you sit beside the families, they may call you up uh, and do it. Uh, I hope that, and I think that religion can rediscover itself. I'm still a practicing, if agnostic, Christian. Um, I do funerals. I go to church. Um, I think that the church on the whole is much more flexible than it ever was. The wee Scottish Episcopal Church, you can even get married if you're gay now. It only happened last year. So religions do change. And very often, one of the things they have to learn to do is to admit that they got things terribly wrong. We got the ordination of women wrong for 2,000 years. It was wrong to do it until five minutes ago. So why is it right now? Okay. Um, we're over here. Um, oh, he would argue, of course, that you got the resurrection of Jesus wrong as well. But yeah. um, uh, there's somebody over here. Uh, if one can describe your current place on your journey as one of fluidity... Is that something you can explain to a child right at the start? Or do you have to have been to the other places you've been on your journey in order for that to resonate with a younger person? Can you say that? Yes. Can you explain that being in mystery? Can you explain that fluidity to a child? Or would a child require stronger leadership and stronger, clearer instruction than this mystery? Children do vary enormously. I think the one thing you don't do with a kid is, is lie, um, directly lie, although I think there may well be situations where you have to engage in a consoling fiction. I give an example of one. One of the first children's deaths I did, a lassie who died of leukemia, um, and she was aged 11, and she was worried about the fact that her parents who were still young would forget her. And I found myself um, uh, talking... Um, about the nature of God. Uh, there is no, no time, no past, present, or future in God. There is an eternal now. And that if you, if you understand your life somehow as encompassed in that, you will always be in an eternal present with your parents. I kind of believed it at the time, but it was the necessary fiction. I quote one of the most staggering novels. I constantly quote it, The Last of the Just, um, a great Holocaust novel. It's about Ernie Levy. There's a there's a myth in, in the Jewish community of, of a single just man who carries the sorrows of the world throughout history. And the last just man is Ernie Levy. He's in a boxcar on the way to Auschwitz, in, and the car is filled with dead and dying children. And he starts telling them a consoling story. He says, in a short time, we will be in Jerusalem, and you will be fed. And all the other children started chanting in, and there will be, there will be uh, warm water for a bath. And, 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 and a friend shakes him by the knee and says, how can you say this? You know this is not true. And he turns to her and says, there is no room for truth here. And I told that story to Richard Dawkins in a debate I had with him. I said, what would you have done in that box, guy? He said, the same. Um, and there was the truth of that event in that situation. So I don't think you can absolutize any of this. Um, um, I visited an old priest this morning, and I gave him a blessing, and it was authentic. Uh, I blessed him in the name of the God I'm not quite sure about. It was not about me. It was about his need. Um, and I will go on doing that. And if that makes me a hypocrite, then fuck it. I don't care. <laughs> Somebody, there's somebody up here. Thank you very much. Hello, it's Christine from Aberdeen. Trouble for you. Um, 
A few years ago, I was with my brother, uh, with the Dalai Lama. He was giving talks down south, and my brother is Buddhist and has been for many years. It was the question of death and dying, and a woman in the audience had written her question saying, I am absolutely terrified of dying, and I think about it every day. What, do, what would you recommend? What should I do? And the Dalai Lama was sitting on his dais with his baseball cap on, and he scratched his head and he thought about it. Then he lifted his head and he said, carry on living. Yep. What do you say about that? I like the old guy. Um, um, and he strikes me as someone who's, in a sense, come through to a kind of um, kindly sanity in life. Um, he doesn't impose his views um, on the world. He probably believes in metempsychosis, reincarnation, because I think that he is still uh, quite a, a devout Buddhist in that sense, and they believe that this life, we're wandering through samsara, we will come to another. But the thing I love about him, he's taken his his eyes off that out there, and he's more and more focusing on how to help us be kinder to each other here and now. Um, I, I interviewed him at a big event in the Usher Hall um, a few years ago, um, and um, uh, he discovered that I was a dog man, and he said, but Richard, I am a cat man. <laughs> I don't think we can end with that, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> the gentleman here, yes, please. Yeah, yeah. yeah, hi, thanks. Uh, great presentation, thank you. I was at Richard Dawkins. Um, can you wave? I can he see you. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah thank and you. My name's Gil. Yeah. And I was at Richard Dawkins' uh, presentation a couple of days back. Yeah. And I came away with the usual mix. It was great on some aspects, but on terms of his religious comments, I came away even more strengthened in my Christian beliefs. He has that effect on me. He's even better than my parish priest at that. <laughs> makes me a stronger Christian. What he did say, though, was and I'm now talking as a scientist, he claimed science would destroy the concept, the uh, idea of the soul. I'm somebody who, as a hard-nosed scientist, believes, though, the science, uh, conscience is a soul. So my question to you is, what do you think? Will science, well, what do you think of Richard Dawkins' claim that science will destroy the soul? Um, I've spent a fair bit of time uh, with Richard Dawkins, um, uh, sometimes in this big tent as well. Um, and I'm very fond of him, um, but he has the same effect on me as evangelical fundamentalists, um, that, that he's, he's so certain and sure of his position, and I'm so uncertain about these ultimate things, that he has the same effect on me as people who attack me on the other side. But there is an element of, of unacknowledged doubt in in Richard, he did admit in a debate with uh, Rowan Williams that he was, there was a touch of agnosticism in him. Um, and uh, I think ultimately the universe, our life within it, is an extraordinary mystery. The fact that 14 billion years into the beginning of that great eruption that they call the Big Bang, in us, and maybe only in us, the universe is thinking about itself. I find that extraordinary, that, that in us, 
uh, pity has come into the world and love and compassion. It seems unlikely that that great explosion of sheer matter should somehow have ethicized itself, however hesitantly and however it's interrupted. That's what keeps me poised on the edge of the possibility of a transcendent meaning behind it all. It may ultimately not have any meaning, in which case we will have proved ourselves to be better than it. It will have produced creatures um, whose thinking and agonizing and struggle to be better and to understand the universe itself will be better than the universe. That again kind of blows my mind. It keeps me, as it were, on this edge. And I, I, I like people who share that wonder but can't figure it out. Be wondering creatures. Don't get too figured out because the problem with the people who figure out is they bugger up the people who refuse to accept the way they figure it. <laughs> one more. One more. Just one, if you can keep it brief, please. Thank you very much. Man in the middle. Uh, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. Uh, my question really is, at the fringe, Richard, of your, your observations and your feelings about death, I wonder what you would feel about enabling and legalizing severely regulated assisted dying for someone who's maybe terminally ill with the regulation to ensure their authenticity and independence. And that, that, that kind of decision uh, yeah. would be yeah. a, a contrary to medical and scientific intention to extend life ad infinitum. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so, right, assisted dying, yeah. 30 yeah. seconds, yeah. Yeah. on you yeah. go. Um, <laughs> no, I need two minutes. Um, I'd like to preface it by saying one of the problems with ethical debate is very rarely between an obvious evil and an obvious right. The, the, the difficulty with ethical debate is usually between different versions of the good, rival versions of the good, which is what makes ethics such a tragic discipline in a way, because good people can disagree. And they do disagree about this. I am technically, personally, um, believe that it would be possible to have an assist, uh, a process of assisted dying that would not fall into the traps of those who fear the traps that it might fall into if it's not managed well. I can see both sides. I'm very impressed when there's a, a debate on, say, Newsnight, um, on this very subject, and they usually bring in someone who may be severely physically handicapped. Um, and they're always afraid because they remember the eugenic history of the 20th century, they remember what happened in the gas ovens of Europe, and they see the possibilities because they do. We humans can be intensely cruel, and so they fear the fact that they may be the people disposed of. Once you admit, I don't share their anxiety. I think we've created better systems and protections, but I can understand it. So ethically, it's not a straightforward one. Um, uh, and uh, we've already hinted at how difficult it is with people suffering from Alzheimer's. But I still do think that there are that it would be possible to have a law that was constantly invigilated in a way that, that would allow a people, a person, the mercy of a death that they want rather than waiting for the one that might cruelly come for them. Um, and my problem with the religious objections to that is that religions tend to object to that assisted dying idea because they believe that God is in charge of our dying. But if you don't have a God who's in charge of it, then you're in charge of it. So how can you impose your metaphysic on me? But if you're debating this, debate it warmly and compassionately. Listen to the other 
Don't again be absolutely too certain that you've got it right. It's intensely complicated. Thank you. So thank you. Um, thanks very much indeed. Um, Richard is going to be signing copies of uh, this book, um, Waiting for the Last Bus in the Tent Next Door. Um, if you want more Faith, Love and Death, I'm talking about it on Monday afternoon at 3.15. Um, if you buy the book, which I highly recommend, you need to buy one other thing, and that is a handkerchief. Uh, please thank Richard Holloway. Thank you, that was good. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.